The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are indeed good and faithful. And we acknowledge that. We speak it out loud. We say thank you. We ask you to work into us greater conviction of your goodness and of your faithfulness. You are God over us, sovereign in every circumstance. And in that, Lord, we have to also make a request of you to help us endure and to walk through every circumstance, believing, rejoicing, hoping, eyes fixed on you, seeing that, as one of the songs we sang earlier says, that it is well with our soul because our, our sin, all of it, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Seeing and believing that. Lord, these things are, are easy to affirm in uh, in air-conditioned peace. And they are harder to affirm at other times in life. And so I pray that you would help us to understand and to think and to believe and to settle down a little more deeply in our minds and hearts these and other related truths so that when we walk out, we have a firmer foundation, a deeper hope. Lord, that takes your spirit to work in us. Would you please send him to run through the room here now to gather our attention from all the various distractions that we face, to gather our attention to your word, to you, Help me to speak clearly and us to listen clearly. To clear away any sin that stands as a barrier, lead us in confession. To clear away distractions, mental or material distractions, and make your word clear. Shine Christ into our hearts. Spirit of God, do that, please. Jesus, show us your love, show us your compassion, show us your saving power. Draw us and lead us. You are Lord, we want to follow you as worthy citizens of your kingdom. So we look to you for enabling power to do that and ask you to make your word clear this morning. We pray in your name, amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Philippians chapter 1 revisiting a part of the passage that we looked at last week. Last week in verses 27 to 30, we saw the Apostle Paul turning his focus. He had up to this point been considering almost exclusively his own situation, the details going on in his own life as he was imprisoned and was looking ahead at trial and and contemplating the possible verdicts and what might come and how he might be able to return to Philippi and minister among them again. Talking about that, weighing those things out, and then at verse 27, he switches and essentially says, but never mind what happens. Whatever becomes of that, only this, let only this be your focus. He draws everybody's attention to one thing and then issues a command. 
main statement of the whole book, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. You become citizens of heaven. You are no longer citizens of Rome, or for us, of America, or China, or France, or whatever. You have become citizens of some other place. Indeed, you live that out here on the earth in various countries at various times and places. But your real citizenship now has been altered. It's been changed. You are citizens of heaven. So the command, live like it. Live worthy of this new citizenship. Live a life defined by the gospel. It's really just, as we said, another way of saying to live is Christ. Live centered on Christ. And if we are to live as worthy citizens, verse 27 continues by telling us some of what that will look like. Just the very briefest. He says, you will live united around one spirit, standing arm in arm, linked together as you are pushing out the gospel, contending for the gospel, striving for it out there in public. And it will be opposed. People won't like it. It will be unpopular. And you will face opposition. And when you do, be fearless. Do not be frightened by that which is frightening. And at the mention of that, that's what brings us to our subject for this morning. Mentioning frightening opposition... He then goes on to talk about how verses 28 and 29 essentially say the way you can rest in that is to know that it's from God, it's from his hand. That's where 29 fits into the context for last week. That's the point considered in the larger passage. But we're going to look at verse 29 in particular, focusing on what exactly is in that verse. So I've just kind of stretched out some of the context there, and now I'm going to set that aside and talk about verse 29 only. There are a few interesting things in that verse, particularly related to the topic of suffering, but maybe not exactly as, as you might expect it. So we are talking about suffering, but we are more talking about verse 29. Verse 29 talks about suffering, but verse 29 is our focus, not the subject of suffering. And as we look at verse 29, here's the point that I think God's going to make for us this morning. God graciously gives his people suffering for the sake of Christ. So that's my main point for this morning. God graciously gives his people suffering for the sake of Christ. Let me read the whole paragraph again before focusing just on verse 29 and making three observations from it. Beginning in verse 27 down through verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of you, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's the passage. And from verse 29, I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first one. Captures the dominant rhythm of the verse, though it might be easy to, to miss. It might be easy to miss the dominant rhythm because of our attention on suffering, but here's the first observation. 
God indeed gives to grace us, but more so to magnify Christ. First observation here is about giving. God indeed gives in order to grace us, but more so to magnify Christ. Verse begins, for it has been granted to you. And then as we saw and as we will see, he goes on to talk about two things that are granted. Those are the next two observations. We'll get to those in a little bit. But first we have to notice the word granted. For it has been granted to you. Or we could translate that perhaps graced to you. But that's a slightly awkward English word. But it would capture the, the root. The, the root word there is the word grace which should alert us to something, we're considering God doing a work of giving grace, God being gracious here when we talk about granted. He's doing something that is good and that is undeserved, that is not merited or earned. It's it's in no way connected to something that is fitting and just and appropriate and proper and just right for him to do. It It is gracious. It's a given privilege, not a right, and not not a bad thing either. It's it's a good thing. He He is acting to give good blessing. He's giving. Now, of course, as any parent understands, anytime that you you say no to a child, that may lead to all kinds of anger and tears and frustration and confusion in the short run, but it could all be about blessing in the long run. You might know better. Or conversely, to to withhold something that's desired might be completely, in in your wisdom, all about blessing and all about good, and they will thank me later for this. But in the short run, there is confusion and tears and, and bother. And it all seems mean and unloving. That's the way it is in all human relationships. One side might seek to do something that is good and right, and the other side might understand it differently and be concerned and upset. It might lead to chafing and raging and crying and fearing and questioning at the, at the immediacy of the loss and the pain. That's, that's true in all of life, and we need to keep that particularly in mind here because I've just been talking about God graciously giving something, and we're going to talk about suffering. So we need to keep in mind that we might have a different perspective, and it might, from a wiser, larger perspective, be really very good. And in the immediate short term, not seem so. God indeed gives to grace us, whether we realize it or not. He's granting a privilege. He means to do good to his beloved ones. That much we get from the word itself, just from the vocabulary here. Before, we, if we could, step back and consider the general character of God and we could get that perspective, of course, God always does good to his people. That's, that's his general character. But we don't even need to go back that far. We could just look at the word and say, we're talking about him gracing. He granted us a privilege. That for us. However, that being true, He gives to us, for us, that's true, but the rhythm of the verse points us towards a larger purpose. It reads, It has been granted to you that 
for the sake of Christ, and that phrase, for the sake of Christ, is in effect underlined in this verse because of how it interrupts the flow of the, of the wording. In the verse, you have the, the verb and the object of the verb separated by this phrase, for the sake of Christ, and which, of course, is how the verse ends also, suffering for his sake. And then Christ is mentioned a third time in the middle in the pronoun him, to believe in him. This is all about Christ, and we've got this for the sake of Christ that's book-ending, granted for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, yes, something in the middle, but the emphasis is here. If, if I were to say to you, I planted in order to spruce up the house some bushes and flowers in order to spruce up the house, you would hear the emphasis. I'm talking about sprucing up the house. That's his point. For the sake of Christ. God is graciously giving to us, granting to us, for the sake of Christ. To bless Christ. That is, to magnify Christ. To honor Christ Jesus so that Christ will be known more widely and more accurately and worshipped more appropriately. Structurally, that is the emphasis of this verse. Underlined for us. We should not be surprised by that because, in fact, if you've been tracking through this chapter, that's the point of the whole chapter. Everything in chapter 1 so far has been about, in one way or another, for the sake of Christ. Paul now is wanting us to think about us, God working in us for the sake of Christ, because he, he said, that's what I'm about, and in fact, that's what God himself is about. He is about lifting up, magnifying Christ, so that in every way Christ is seen. To live is Christ. In every way and in everything, it is from him and for him and through him and all about him. It's about Christ. You could have a, a scratch in the record. I, I could stand here for an hour and say it's for Christ, it's for Christ, and still would be inappropriately short. The world and your life is for the sake of Christ. That's why he gives to us at work in us and through us for Jesus. That's appropriate given who Jesus is. This is the Son, the great and magnificent one who has come to earth, taken on a body, gone to the cross to take up a throne. It is appropriate that it all be about him. And it is good that it all be about him. It's all over this chapter. However, one more however, that's in verse 29 for a particular reason. It's not here in verse 29 just to sing of Christ. It's, it's being used for something. The truth here in verse 29 is presenting to us a context for our suffering. It's very important to see this. God gives us suffering, as we'll see, 
That is gracing us. It's one of the things he gives us. But a significant help in dealing with our suffering, you have to stop and think about this. A significant help in dealing with our suffering is to get our eyes off of ourselves and our suffering and put them onto for the sake of Christ. That's why he has this here. In this context, in which he just talked about, talked about that which is frightening, that which would be hard, talks about that which is his experience, the same conflict that he has, standing trial before Caesar, opponents that are doing things that will be suffering. In this context, he tells us, it's for Christ, for his sake. What God gives you, Yes, indeed, it's good for you, but that's not the point. Indeed, yes, it's grace for you, but that's not the point. It's for the sake of Christ. To live is Christ. To live even in suffering is all about him. That's what Paul has modeled for us. Think of verse 12 here. Whether physically afflicted, locked up, chained, emotionally afflicted by having my reputation attacked, whatever, if the gospel is advanced, if Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Paul's saying all of my suffering is all about Christ. The way I'm happy with that is that my eyes are set on Christ. Not my blistered wrists and my beaten back and my uncertain future. This is critical. Critical. You may never understand, and, and very often, if, if you stop and think about the, the hardships that you face in your life, some looking back at you may understand, but some you never will, and certainly in the middle of them you don't. How in the world was this grace to me? How in the world was this, was this good? And ultimately, brother, sister, ultimately the answer to that is, who cares? say that again, and I hope to say that not in an uncaring way, but in a clear way. Do you realize how much we automatically, unthinkingly orient all of life to be about, how is this good to me? How is this benefiting me? How is this blessing me? And the answer to that is, who asked you? You are simply a servant. Simply a servant. Where we began in verse 1. Servants exist for the sake of their master. Gloriously, this master graciously blesses and gives for the good of his servants. But that is beside the point. The first and primary truth we need to get oriented around is master and servant. A significant help in dealing with our suffering is to get this point straight. 
for the sake of Christ. That is the only way that Paul handles his suffering, first emotionally and then behaviorally, not grumbling and not complaining and not fighting or maligning or moaning or moping or fearing. He grabs hold of this and says, Christ, if Christ would be honored in my body, oh, good news. If Christ is honored by the diminution of my reputation, good news. If Christ is proclaimed by my imprisonment and my suffering and perhaps my death, good news. Because Christ is why I exist. It's why you exist, citizen of heaven, servant of the Lord. All for Christ and for His glory. We must develop the habit of taking ourselves in hand in the midst of our suffering. And I say develop the habit because this is incredibly difficult. As I said earlier when I was praying, it is easy to say this in air-conditioned peace. Harder at many other times. It has been harder at many other times in my life. I, I, underst I understand that. But we must develop the habit of taking ourselves in hand and submitting the stuff that's going on in here and the stuff that goes on in here to the truth. We're simply servants. We exist for the sake of Christ. From start to finish. And with that in mind, we're ready to consider then what it is that he gives. Second observation. Second, God has graciously granted us the privilege of believing in Christ. God has graciously granted us the privilege of believing in Christ. For it's been granted to you, graciously granted a privilege. It's not a, not a payment, it's not something that we deserve. And it's not universal. This is something that is unique to Christians. Only Christians are given this gracious gift. And in fact, it's how we became Christians. First place. God, by grace, granting us the privilege, giving us the ability to believe in Him. To believe in Christ. Ephesians 2, a familiar verse to us, teaches that by grace you have been saved through faith, and on top of that, if you ask, well, how is it that we came to believe? How do we come to believe? By grace, you're saved through faith. Faith's important. How is it that faith came? How is it that I came to believe? The Bible answers right here, for instance. By God, in still more grace, granting us the gift of believing. That's why salvation is all about the grace of God from start to finish. It's a gracious gift, even the believing. A gracious gift given. I don't know where you come from. That might be new for you to hear. It might be a different way than you're accustomed to thinking about how a person becomes a Christian. Nonetheless, this is, it is the consistent testimony of the Bible, I would, I would argue. 
It's crystal clear here in this verse. And it's made even more compelling in this verse by the fact that this statement is not what Paul intends to teach. It's what he assumes they all already agree on. He's using that, again, on the way to something else, on the way to the point about suffering. Notice the wording. The language treats it in a very offhanded way. For it's been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's been granted not only to believe, of course you all know that's happened, but also to suffer. The suffering is the unique point. This is the assumed point. He shares that in common with his Philippian audience and mentions it because it's going to be useful for something else he's going to say. It's going to be, as we'll talk about it, I mean, it's going to be useful getting over here, but given that we all already know this, you see how that makes the point even more powerful? He assumes they already agree. God has given us belief. God has given us faith. So we need to pause for a second. It's worth understanding what he assumes so that we can perhaps move more to where he is when he uses it to make his point. Talking about giving belief, granting the privilege of believing in Christ. Now to be very clear, if you are a Christian, you are one because you did believe. You had to exercise faith. You had to hear the message of the gospel, the message about what Jesus is. God, come to earth in flesh. Jesus then, gone to the cross to pay, in his death on the cross, to pay the penalty for the sin of people here on this earth who trust that cross payment. You need to hear that, intellectually process it, and then roll your trust away from, I think I'll work to make myself okay, away from that, and realize I can't actually make myself okay. In my sin I am lost. And to roll away from that, Jesus' death on the cross is the only hope that I have to be forgiven. And as you roll trust onto his cross and believe, trust him, then you are saved. You had to think that through, make a decision. However, this faith and the ability to exercise it does not naturally live in sinful fallen people anymore. That's the problem. We do not have the ability to believe. The moral ability to believe. We are unable to. I'm not talking about physically unable. Physically, you're completely able to hear the English words or whatever language you speak, to hear the words, to process the argument, to understand what's being claimed, understand what's being promised, and to weigh them out and make a choice. You're completely able physically to do that, intellectually to do that. The problem is not an intellectual inability or a physical inability. It is a moral inability. A spiritual inability which is the natural, devastating reality of what sin is. Ever since Adam, he died in his sin, and we have all then after him been born dead. 
been born with dead sin natures. And so when we hear the argument in English and weigh it out and see what's claimed and what's, what's threatened and what's promised and what would happen, you make a decision, we always choose against God and for ourselves, relying, believing on me. His claim and his hope and his promise falls on spiritually dead ears. As Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says, before we became Christians, we do not submit to God's law, indeed cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is inability. Cannot. Twice. That's what the flesh is. So we do not believe him. We must be given to believe. And gloriously, graciously, that's what God did. Does. To people. He gives us, individuals, the privilege of believing and oh, how we benefit from that. You must consider the benefit of this. It's going somewhere in, his, in the flow of his argument. To be given the privilege of believing in him is not to be given the privilege of being a member of, of a particular social group in some city somewhere on earth. To be given a circle of friends. To be given some place to call home, some, some identity, some purpose in life. Far more than that. To be given the privilege to believe in Him is to be given the privilege of finding again union with that one for whom your heart was made. The one who is the very definition of all that is good and glorious and right and full of hope and beauty. It's to be given the privilege of finding and walking with God forever and ever and ever. It is the most wonderful, amazing thing in all of eternity. And indeed, it also carries privileges here on earth, a fellowship with people, a purpose. Yeah, yeah, great. But God, if life is all about Christ, you get Christ given as a privilege. What a marvelous thing. All of your sin all of your sin that invites and deserves the wrath of God is taken away and nailed to the cross. Forgiveness. Think about, some of you, think about the things that burden you right now about you. And not about other people. Some of us sit here probably right now thinking, I am a guilty person. And in Christ, clean. Some of us can walk back through our minds and think, oh man, I hope that never comes up again. I hope nobody ever finds out about that. Guess what? He knows. And in Christ, clean. It is a marvelous, amazing privilege given to you as a gift. And that begins to answer the question as to why Paul lays down this assumed doctrine like here without even explaining it. I've just had to explain a little bit because we don't know what his audience knew. Paul doesn't go into any of that, but he brings that up and lays it on the table. Why? Again, 
another layer of context around the topic of suffering that's coming. A context that helps us explain and endure the experience of suffering. He gave us life. Life. Does that not prove his character to us? Does that not answer the question, is he in this for my good or for my ill? Does it not prove his ability to honor his own name while also doing great good to me? Indeed. Step back from the spiritual and just, and just ask yourself, if somebody says to you, I want to give you a 2014 name your favorite car. I want to give you a 2014 Toyota minivan. <laughs> Wasn't what you were thinking? <laughs> some want that, some don't. It's loaded. It's got all the bells and whistles. It even has the entertainment system and the navigation system and the trunk space and that thing is amazing. Oh, I don't like white cars, no thanks. Who thinks like that? Free, 2014. Everything in it works, brand new, mileage zero. I don't drive white. No thanks. I'm not talking about anything spiritual, I'm just saying nobody thinks like that. When you weigh out costs and benefits, you say, we have phrases for this, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Take the car. So what if it's white? And consider, take it considering the list of benefits that far outweighs a color I don't prefer. Now, I want to preempt, in case you see where I'm going with this, I want to say, I understand that tragedies and sufferings in life have much more impact on our lives than colors of cars. I also want to suggest that life has more impact on our lives than re-entertainment systems. The analogy holds, even though, granted, the shortcoming here at White is nothing like murder, sexual abuse as a child. I get that. I'm also saying, but do you get that all of the benefits that a 2014 Toyota offer is nothing just like white is nothing, nothing compared to life in Christ given to you. Given. Union with Jesus forever. A tremendous privilege given to you. 
in grace. He graced you with a blessing that you will never fathom the depths of. Oh, brother, sister, son, daughter of God, do you get that? He has given you life. For the sake of Christ, because look how it magnifies Him to be so good and merciful and powerful to give you life. That must be the context in which you consider suffering. If you're going to think about suffering rightly, you must see it placed into my existence right here for these who knows how many years, 42 so far, placed into my existence right now at this point, but this is my existence. I have life with Christ all by a gift. That must be the context where you'll never see suffering properly and never endure it well. It will be a forever temptation to say, woe is me, and never say, wow, is Christ, and blessed is me. If you don't weigh out properly, white, yeah, marvelous gift. And really, I could stop right here at the end of the second point and say, that's the sermon about suffering. Now, the way I've set it up, I'm going to say a little bit more, but not much more, and not much more that's important. This context, I would suggest to you, if you stop and think about this, I, I think it's true, this context is all that we need to walk through suffering well. And it is all that most people in the world, most Christians in the world, ever have. In a whole lot of places, suffering comes fast and furious. Living life is full of suffering, not to mention Christians in a hard place. And to ask, what's God doing in this, is, is to ask, what's God doing in every single second of the day? Who, who, can, who can tell? So why bother? I just know who he is, and know what he's given me, and I know I'm to live as a servant of his for his glory. Good enough. He's proven his character to me. He's proven that he's good, that he loves me, that he's after my, my blessing forever. And I then am here as a servant of his to live as a citizen worthy and lift up Christ and make him known. Come whatever may, who can bother with the details? That's where most Christians live, and that's where we can live just fine. So really, the sermon about suffering is over. That's what we need. To see a Christ who gives life. But well, we can say a little bit more, and I will say just a little bit more in the third observation. God has graciously granted us the privilege of suffering for Christ. Obviously, the third point. He's graciously granted us the privilege of suffering for Christ. The word granted obviously applies to both of these things that are said in parallel, not only to believe but also to suffer. Granted as a grace gift, both things the same, which is the surprising point, which is why he has buffeted it with the two, two uh, contexts 
Because it seems surprising at first that from the hand of God comes suffering. He gives. Indeed. Now, for those who were here as we traveled for years through First and Second Samuel, this is perhaps a little more familiar, but we talked repeatedly as we looked at all of God's dealings with many different people throughout that period of Samuel and King David. We talked repeatedly about the idea of providence and how God works providentially. God carries out his purposes, his plans. They are his purposes and plans. They're not incidental responses. Purposes and plans. He carries them out through other agents like people or animals or weather, natural laws, things like that. These things function according to how they usually function, and God is at work in them to do what he intends to do, to carry out his purposes, the doctrine of providence. He works through sin. Keep the R. We talked about that several times. He works even through sin. So indeed, in the context here, what Paul has in mind, the sufferings they're going to face, is the persecution from these opponents of the gospel, which the opponents themselves will do, and for which they will be held responsible. It is, it is sinful. And God will judge them for what they have done. But the point he's trying to reinforce to them is, but do not think that they are the deciders here, that they are in charge of the situation. No, in fact, God is. He says at the end of 28, that from God, and then talks about what God has granted, which includes suffering. Nothing comes to us that does not come through God and is not under his purposeful planning. This is all over the Bible. It's right here. So in one sense, what at first might seem puzzling should and is designed to give us rest, to say, ah, the hardship that I encounter, I see the context I am to be about Christ, and it is given to me, but ultimately for Christ. It is good for me, though. And it's in the context of him giving me life, which has shown his character and his intention to do me good. So, okay, he must mean something here. He must be up to something here. Yeah. There should be encouragement in that. And then we can ask, well, like what? As I said, this part, most of us will never know about any particular thing. And even when you have something happen to you that you then look back and say, oh, I get it. Even then you should say, maybe. Because I might not get all of it. I might only see a little piece of what God was doing. I never saw that he was doing this over here. Or I never saw that that was only a part of a much larger thing yet to come. So even looking back, we only see pieces. But we can consider what is God doing when he gives suffering? How is that good grace to me? Not that the thing itself is inherently good, but being used for good. How is that grace to me? And how does it exalt, how does it honor Christ? 
Well, perhaps in a couple of these ways. It's worth thinking about. Jot this down and look at it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. A significant passage because it talks about, again, it is Paul, and again, talking about the context of, of gospel witness. And he talks there about affliction and suffering, so he's right in the same vein as he is here in this passage. And he talks about how they were just burdened in their afflictions. They despaired of life itself. They, they were sure they were going to die. And then he says, but that was to, purpose, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us and will deliver us. And on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Hard-pressed, afflicted, suffering, so much so that, that we've given up all hope, we're sure we're going to die. And that had a purpose. God gave that to Paul and company for the purpose of turning them from trusting in themselves and their circumstances to trusting in the God who raises the dead. To make us hope in Him. He meant to turn them away from trusting themselves to trusting Him. Something we all are prone to do. Something which suffering consistently undermines. Because when you are suffering... You think about what's going on when you're suffering. At the point of your suffering, you have met your inability. If you had ability, you would fix it and you wouldn't suffer. If you have a headache and you, take, you can take some Tylenol or whatever, and the headache goes away, you will do that. When it doesn't go away, and you take the next level of painkiller, and it doesn't go away, then you are suffering and have met your inability. Apply that to any circumstance. In our suffering, we find our bottom. I can't go any lower than this. And we begin to look for someone else, something else that can, something else that can stand beneath that and can undergird us and hold us up. Suffering inevitably pushes us beyond ourselves and turns us away from the things that I can grab, the things that I can touch, and it pushes us on to someone else. Ultimately, as hope after hope after hope after hope is cut down, we find God, the one who raises the dead. Sometimes, God is at work in just that way in our lives to turn us from ourselves to Him using suffering as His good tool. And that is a good thing because He is the only reliable hope, the one who raises the dead and is the deliverer and will deliver. At other times, suffering is useful in God's hand at work in our lives to, 
to alert us to the transience of the things that we are grabbed onto and to point us towards things that are really valuable and, and really precious. How many times have you, in, in the midst of, of something that you love, your brand new 2014 Toyota minivan, when you crashed it, it's got maybe just a little fender bender, and it's got a dent in it now, and at first you're, ah, oh, and then you get used to it. And then somebody scraped the side of it against the parking pillar. Ah, and then you get used to that. And then the French fry dust began to accumulate and you get used to that. Etc., etc., etc. And what comes out of the other end of that I'm, again, I'm not speaking spiritually, I'm just speaking naturally, is a more reasonable person. Someone doesn't worship a car. I'm not introducing anything spiritual there yet. I'm saying, as the, the dents and the nicks and the, the dirt accumulates, we kind of realize this stuff is just a thing. It's not actually, not actually filling me here. That's a good lesson to learn. Now, introduce the spiritual realm again. We run through life looking for something to satisfy us. And God sometimes, graciously through suffering, deprives us of those things. I used to be a decent athlete. maybe even used to trust in that a little bit too much, used to rely on that, used to make it a little bit of identity issue for me there. And now I play against 20-year-olds and find out that I'm not. That's a gracious thing when my body hurts after that. Not just that I can't guard so-and-so who's 20 years old, but that my body hurts after that. What am I, if I stop and think about that, what am I learning? What might you learn in that? I'm a flower quickly fading. Here today and already going. Compared to some of you, I look young and strong. Compared to others, not so much. But in this, in that experience, I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. It's, it's you too. I just don't want to talk about you and your aging. <laughs> it's there in you too, though. It's a good thing to realize what really matters in this life is Jesus, not my athletic ability, or my intellectual prowess, or my car, or all this, the relationships that I build and develop. These things, they do not actually satisfy. And as they are knocked away or chipped down or diminished, sometimes God shows that to us. And indeed, this passing life, the whole thing, may graciously begin to seem like not that big of a deal. That is so hard for us to get. This Comparatively, that's a huge word, comparatively, is not that big of a deal. 
The kingdom that is coming. It has now come, but it is coming. And that is a big deal. And to live for that and not for the stuff that's running like sand through your fingers, may God sometimes graciously through suffering, may He convince you of that. May He press into you the words of Psalm 73, paraphrased, What have I on earth that I desire beside you? There's nothing here that compares. It's rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Certainly there are other ways that he uses suffering in our lives to do good to us. But most importantly, for the sake of Christ, he uses suffering in our lives to honor Christ as He becomes the one that we trust, as He becomes the one that we treasure amidst all of the yuck that's going on, as Paul and Barnabas sit in a jail cell, bleeding, chained, in the dark, perhaps facing death tomorrow, and sing. Christ is honored. Those guys are, are getting something. What's in this for me? How does the, the false accusation and the beating and the imprisonment and the beheading tomorrow benefit me? Uh, maybe in this moment there might be some things I could think through, but who cares? That these ones, that this jailer in his household, that they might see Christ as glorious in my life. Oh, that's why I'm here. This magnifies Christ and magnifies the gospel of Christ as we human beings, people, not, not robots, not catatonic shells of selves. I have no feelings. Beatings do not hurt me. And I do not fear death. It's, I don't even know what it is. As, as a robot, as a, as a, a non-thinking, non-feeling person. No. You look at somebody like that and you think, weirdo. <laughs> and whatever he's following that put him in that camp, I want to avoid because that's odd. No, a person who with all feeling and all of life says, I feel the blows, I fear the loss, but I have something else above that that is more precious and more glorious that gives shape to all of this. And in him I cast my, on him I cast my hope. He will deliver me. That is remarkable, strange in a good way. As verse 27, 8 says, that's a sign to them of their destruction, but to me of my salvation. I had a friend who was in the Sears Tower. It's got a different name now. It's in Chicago. I don't know what it's called now, but for me, it's forever the Sears Tower. In Chicago on 9-11, on whatever floor, way up there somewhere when they heard the news of the towers, people panicked. Somebody starts talking, people start thinking, and, and you know, pretty soon they're sure there are planes flying at Chicago. Of course, we know there weren't, but everybody's panicking, and everybody's running down the stairs trying to get out of the Sears Tower. Just you know, the same situation in New York. They're chaos. 
And somewhere jam-packed on a stairwell, she reports, I realized, I believe. She's married, she's got a kid. I reckon all of the truth here that I might die right now or the next five minutes or whatever. We've heard what's happened. And I don't want to lose them. I'm not some catatonic shell of a person that has no feeling and no recollection of, of all my past blessings and enjoyment of them and no, no sorrow at the future loss of them. I don't want to lose them. I don't want to never see my husband and my child again. But I stand here in the stairwell and what's running through my mind is the gospel and I believe it. Huh. A sign to her of her salvation. That's a good thing. I don't know that she took it the next step. I don't know that, I don't think that it was in any way visible there. They were all kind of in the same panicked boat, I think. But if somehow, to change that situation a little bit, if she's sitting there in the midst of, perhaps like Stephen, Acts chapter 7, in the midst of all those people jammed into the stairwell, and they are afflicting her, and she says, I believe, or in Stephen's words, I see heaven opened and the Lord Jesus standing to receive me. I feel rocks. I understand what that means, and I believe that honors Christ and displays in front of people the gospel in all of its truth that this saves and this is precious and this is the actual gospel the gospel that embraces and has a place for suffering sacrifice and and actually, the reason that these things fit together is that the gospel itself, think about it, the gospel itself is about suffering and sacrifice. Christ's suffering and sacrifice. That's at the core of the gospel. And any gospel that's got that at the core will model that in those who believe it and are embraced by it and are conformed to it. A people who for a joy set before them endure the cross like the Savior did. So when people live set on some other joy and endure the cross, the suffering here, they say, this is true. Look at it in my life. Embrace it. You can walk it. You can find joy in the middle of it. So many man-made religions, so many man-made religions flip that and say, this is true because I am prospered. This is true because I have no problems. That should be your first sign that it's false. This is a world that's broken. God means to enable you to live through brokenness, to live through suffering, showing that He, the broken sufferer, is real and is your God, the one you are attached to. It makes no sense at all to attach to a broken, suffering servant and then live separate from Him. Now, I didn't intend to say a lot of that. So, um, <laughs> and, and 
I've got to stop. <laughs> but, but there, but there, no, no. Okay, no. <laughs> I'm off the farm here. Where am I? <laughs> um, our suffering is given by God to, in some ways, bless and grace us, and perhaps we've explored a couple of them. There are more, I'm sure. But in particular, it is, as we saw, for the sake of Christ. It shows the truth of a suffering servant as we embody him, as we complete in a visible way. We show people, we fill up the sufferings of Christ in front of their eyes. It testifies to who he is, what the gospel is, and proves that to be sufficient. Proves it to be sufficient. Look at me. That suffices for me in the middle of my jail cell. It can suffice for you. And so it honors Christ. It lifts him up and magnifies him in front of the eyes of people in a way that bounty and blessing does not. Everybody's happy with bounty and blessing. So suffering is given to us as a grace gift from God. That must sit in the context of a God who has given you life and a God to whom you have been made a servant for his sake. God graciously grants us suffering for the sake of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, would you have your way in in us, your people? Particularly in the midst of hardship, would you have your way with us to show us your kindness in ways that we can see? Even if we don't see it in the middle of, of the actual circumstances experienced, would you remind us of the context in which those circumstances sit? You've given us life shown us your goodness and called us to be servants. Remind your people of that, Lord, I pray. Do good to us. Build your church. Honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 
84121.